It's time for our regular segment, Barrister and Solicitor with Mulligan Defense Lawyers. Legally speaking, good morning, Michael Mulligan. How are we doing? Good morning. I'm doing great. Always good to be here. Some interesting topics that are on the agenda today. The idea of um, that, that Tom Cruise movie, Minority Report. If you could see the future, and we've been doing some predicting work on the program, which I'm sure you're aware of. If you could know with perfect certainty that somebody would commit a crime in the future, is it moral to arrest them before they actually do anything wrong to prevent it? Or could it be prevented if we knew about it? What does that have to do with a decision on civil forfeiture? <laughs> Well, that's a good question. I think uh, the uh, uh, province of BC is moving uh, kind of creepily close uh, to that uh, minority report idea of future crime and trying to suppress it uh, in the form uh, of the Civil Forfeiture Act and how that now operates in BC. Uh, and one of the important pieces of background to have is that in Canada, we've got, of course, the Charter, which provides uh, protections for all sorts of uh, uh, legal rights. But one of the things that is not in the Charter, and it was debated before it was uh, uh, drafted, part of the drafting process, was the issue of the protection of property. And in the United States, there is constitutional protection for property. Uh, their constitution says no person shall be deprived of life, liberty, or property without due process of law, nor shall private property be taken for public use without just compensation. We lack that in Canada, and one of the consequences of that is that uh, we have this concept uh, that's come in of civil forfeiture. It came in in British Columbia in uh, 2006, so it hasn't been around for that long. And I should say that well prior to that, uh, the criminal code uh, did and does have provisions where if somebody is actually convicted of a criminal offense, one of the consequences can be the forfeiture of property, like the thing that they got, right? If somebody robbed the bank, guess what? <laughs> They're convicted. The money's being t taken back and given back to the bank, right? That's probably no surprise. Mm -hmm. But this concept of civil forfeiture came in for a couple of reasons. First of all, the standard of proof for civil forfeiture is lower than what would be required to convict somebody of a criminal offense. Criminally, you're presumed to be innocent, and the Crown must prove you've done something beyond all reasonable doubt. Civil forfeiture, the civil word in it, really means the civil standard of proof, which is just probably. Hmm. And so, in British Columbia, if the government can establish that probably... Uh, property was either the proceeds of unlawful activity or an instrument of unlawful activity that could be forfeited and taken by the province on a standard of probably, right? If they conclude this was probably something that came from unlawful activity, well, the government could just take it. Um, and so that was pretty appealing from a provincial point of view. Moreover, uh, with the province doing it, the province gets to keep the stuff they're taking on that lower standard of proof. And so that's the history of why we've got the Civil Forfeiture Act. Now, there is a decision which just came out involving uh, an application for civil forfeiture of three clubhouses for the Hells Angels. And the case is an interesting background. At trial, uh, the judge hearing the case found that uh, some provisions of the Civil Forfeiture Act were unconstitutional and was not satisfied that there was sufficient evidence to forfeit the clubhouses. And one of the interesting parts of that comes back to that issue of future crime, because 
the concept uh, of this uh, language is instruments of unlawful activity, which to uh, simplify it would be something that could be used in a crime. Like, for example, if somebody had the mask and gun <laughs> that yeah. they're going to take to go, you know, they used robbing a bank, those could be forfeited. But the Civil Forfeiture Act now includes this concept not only of something which was used to commit a crime, but property that is likely to be used to engage in unlawful activity. So you can have a circumstance where there's no evidence somebody has done anything with the property involving committing a crime in the past, but if the government could establish that probably, that civil standard, that property would be used to engage in unlawful activity in the future, it can also be forfeited. Remember, there's no constitutional protection, uh, and it's an example of just how broad... Uh, the provincial authority is in Canada to just take property from people. Uh, and so in this particular case, there was some really interesting evidence led about the Hells Angels and that organization, which is perhaps of interest. Uh, the uh, judge uh, heard evidence that the Hells Angels, as of 2016, there were 462 chapters in 56 countries, 6,000 individuals were members then, and there were 34 active uh, chapters in Canada. And the background of this uh, is that the RCMP engaged in, it sounds like an undercover operation, to try to see if they could find evidence that the Hells Angels were engaged in illegal activity. Uh, and the uh, RCMP has a penchant for naming those kinds of operations. The names are often pretty good. This one was called Project Halo. Uh, and Project Halo investigated the, RC the Hells Angels, mm -hmm. but no criminal charges were laid. They didn't get enough evidence to charge anyone or charge the Hells Angels with doing anything illegal. But instead, the matter was referred to the civil forfeiture people. The civil forfeiture is kind of where criminal investigations that don't get enough evidence go not to die, but to carry on on that lower standard. Hmm. And the uh, other interesting evidence included uh, that the Hells Angels actually are pretty well structured. Uh, they've got a rule book. Uh, the World Rules of the Hells Angels, uh, which is 40 pages long. And the book includes things like it's a non-political organization. Uh, the organization does not condone unlawful or illegal activities. It prohibits things like the use of narcotics, uh, prohibits dealings of any kind that will reflect badly on the club. And so when you sort of look at it, you say, okay, well, you know, there, there wasn't evidence, and in this case there wasn't evidence, that... The Hells Angels had in the past committed criminal activity. And so the province relied upon, first of all, they tried to prove they were a criminal organization, but they didn't have evidence of that, uh, sufficient evidence of that. And so they relied upon this section of future crime. And their argument was the clubhouses would be used in the future for criminal activity, even though they didn't have evidence to prove that they had done so in the past. Uh, and... They relied on things like uh, the fact that the Hells Angels had a, uh, a strong interest in privacy, mm -hmm. that the uh, clubhouses were organized without windows you could look into from the first floor. They had fences around them. They had cameras for security. There was also evidence that um, individual members of the organization had engaged in criminal activity in the past. Um, and then they asked the judge to draw an inference that these clubhouses would be used in the future uh, for criminal criminal purposes. And so they wanted them forfeited. Judge didn't accept that and, in fact, 
found that this provincial law was unconstitutional because it was an effort to make criminal law, which is a federal jurisdiction in uh, in Canada. Huh. So the province appealed, uh, and the Court of Appeal decision just came out. And the Court of Appeal reversed the trial judge. Uh, and they did so in a few interesting ways. The decision goes on for 101 pages. It's like the Dalmatians. Wow. Um, and... Well, one of the things that the Court of Appeal did, which was interesting and unusual for the Court of Appeal, is usually when judges make findings of fact, those aren't things that are interfered with on appeal. Because they usually say, well, the judge heard the evidence directly. We're in a worse position than the judge. We're here to deal with legal issues. How are we supposed to come to some different finding on the facts? But the court goes on for pages and pages and pages. It does interfere with some of the findings of fact that the judge made, finding that the judge should have uh, drawn inferences that the judge didn't draw, and finding that the judge was applying like too high of a standard to the evidence, reminding, saying to everyone, well, this is just probably, that's all that's necessary. Uh, and the uh, judge was too strict with the uh, uh, requirements to be satisfied of things. And so the Court of Appeal found the judge should have drawn inferences about what this, these clubhouses would have been used for in the future. Uh, and furthermore, uh, the Court of Appeal found uh, that uh, the Civil Forfeiture Act was not an unconstitutional effort to make criminal law to the extent that they were trying to, that the act permits seizing things that haven't been used for criminal activity in the past, but might be in the future, they found that that was permissible. Uh, and so the Court of Appeal has reversed what the trial judge found and ordered that these clubhouses can be and should be forfeited to the province. And so it's a really interesting case, and it involves some of those just big-picture issues people should think about, bearing in mind that courts are not analyzing the legislation from the perspective of, is this a good idea, yeah. or is this fair, or reasonable? Should we take people's property away on a standard of probably that they're going to do something in the future? Uh, the court doesn't answer that, because that's not what a court does. They're analyzing it. The court is analyzing it from the perspective of, is this legally possible? Right, And the analogy I think I've used before is it's kind of like um, if you figured out the uh, recommended dosage for a drug by figuring out what would kill the patient and then recommending you take just a little less and say, well, that's fine then, <laughs> right? Uh, and I guess I would urge people to think about this decision um, and this legislation from that perspective, not is this possible or what do you think of the Hells Angels or their book or any of those perspectives, but rather people should listen to this and think about it from the perspective of do we want a legal regime where people's property can be taken from them on the basis that they, uh, there's a conclusion that the person will probably, in the future, use it for some unlawful purpose, even if they haven't in the past. Uh, and so that is the regime we have in British Columbia. Um, interestingly, I think when in opposition, the, the NDP was calling for a review of this legislation in terms of whether this was fair or not. But all that's gone out the window now that they're in government, right? Um, because you can see why this kind of legislation would be popular. Right, if you're particularly the government, yeah. right, you can look tough. You can take property. You get to keep it. Uh, but uh, you know, we I think we should think carefully about whether we want to have uh, future crime uh, predictions used to take people's property away, because that's what we've got in British Columbia, and it will be really interesting to watch 
whether this uh, whether there's an application for leave to appeal to the Supreme Court of Canada. It seems very likely, given all the uh, work that's gone into this thing and what's at stake. Yeah. Uh, but whatever the court does, people should think about it not from the perspective of is it legal, but from the perspective of is this a good idea? Do we want to live in a place where people's property is subject to being taken uh, on this basis? Michael Mulligan with Mulligan Defense Lawyers. Legally speaking, we'll continue in just a moment right after this commercial break. And we're listening to Michael Mulligan, barrister and solicitor with Mulligan Defense Lawyers, legally speaking on CFAX 1070. What's next on the agenda, Michael? Uh, next on the agenda is a uh, case that deals with the issue of how a trial judge is supposed to sentence somebody uh, once they've been convicted by a jury. How, how is that supposed to work? Um, and this is a fact pattern of the case. It's a case that just came out from the uh, Court of Appeal. Uh, the background, the accused of this case, he was 74 years of age at the time of the offense and 77 years of age at the time of trial. Uh, he's somebody who's described as having several university degrees, no prior criminal record, and uh, very successful in work and otherwise. But he wound up in some financial difficulty, and so he, the accused, and his son moved in with another man who turned out to be very challenging. They were roommates, right? They shared, I think, three bedrooms, it sounds like, in a house. Mm -hmm. The man they moved in with uh, it was uh, turned out to be unpredictable, violent, and threatening, mm. um, and for months had been threatening this man and his son. And on the night in question, uh, the uh, man, who eventually the deceased, indicated that uh, he was going to uh, come and deal with the uh, two, the man and his son, at midnight. Uh, and uh, it was a dispute over the rent. And the man would uh, come out of his room and march loudly in front of the rooms of the man and his son, uh, telling them, uh, counting down towards midnight when he was going to come and deal with them. Hmm. The man, the accused, had a lawfully possessed revolver, and he loaded it. And he sent text messages to his son saying things like, if anything starts, I'm going to empty the 22 mag into his head oh. and other comments like that. Don't worry, I'll deal with it if it's required. And sure enough, at midnight, uh, the eventual deceased emerges from his room um, and indicates that he's coming to carry out his threat against the man and his son. The accused comes out of his room, he conceals that he's got the gun and tells the man to back off, or back up. The man doesn't, so the, the accused pulls out his gun and empties the entire thing into the deceased, wow. killing him. That's the fact pattern. The, the man, the 74-year-old at the time, accused, is charged with, with second-degree murder, and he has a trial with a jury, as most uh, murder trials are. The jury finds him not guilty of murder, but instead guilty of manslaughter. Uh, and so that is the circumstance in which the judge has to sentence the now 77-year-old man. And the reason why it can be a bit of a tricky thing is that, of course, you've got the decision-maker about whether the person's guilty or not, the jury, is not the same as the person who's doing the sentencing. And so that then requires the judge to determine, well, on what facts am I sentencing this man? The jury's found him not guilty of murder, but guilty of manslaughter. And there are a variety of possible interpretations for, well, what, what, what did the jury have in mind? On, on what basis should the judge be doing that? And the Crown argued that uh, this event was a near murder, uh, and so the man ought to receive a very high sentence. Whereas the defense argued that this was a near self-defense, 
uh, and maybe he used too much force to defend himself against this threatening man, given the background. But he has a low moral culpability because it was almost self-defense, but not quite so found the jury, right? Mm. And so the judge had to sort out how to deal with that. And the judge drew a middle course and found that this was neither near murder nor near self-defense and sentenced the 77-year-old to seven years in prison. Um, And so it was from that uh, that the 77-year-old appealed, um, arguing that the uh, trial judge uh, should not have uh, made the finding that he did uh, and uh, should have uh, found that there was a lower degree of moral blameworthiness than the judge uh, appeared to find for the purpose of uh, sentencing. And, and I should pause here for a moment to say that that uh, that second that issue of sentencing following a jury conviction, it can also be the case, although not here, where an accused person could choose to testify or call evidence, right? Sometimes you might have a circumstance where a person chooses not to testify at their trial. Mm-hmm. Jury makes a finding based on the evidence they had, but then the person chooses to testify. For example, right? Mm. Well, here's my role in it, or here's why I did this or did that, right? Yeah. Uh, but the judge is required to draw or find things that would be consistent with the jury's verdict, even if they wouldn't have been the judge's conclusion. Uh, but then there can be other evidence that the judge might need to uh, put into the decision-making hopper when determining what an appropriate sentence would be. And here, the Court of Appeal found that the trial judge had acted properly. Uh, the trial judge had, the Court of Appeal found, not made some error or failed to take into account uh, you know, moral blameworthiness or remorse or any of those things. And interestingly, in contrast with the case we just talked about, the Court of Appeal uh, found that it was important to exercise, of course, restraint uh, on an appeal, uh, finding that, of course, you know, there's a wide range of uh, discretion for a trial judge and there ought not to be uh, a Court of Appeal ought not to interfere with a decision like this on sentence unless it was demonstrated that the sentence was demonstrably unfit, right? So it's not a matter of on a sentence appeal saying, would you have come to the same decision or should you have tinkered with this? It's a matter of, is it demonstrably unfit? And if it doesn't get over that high bar, trial judges' decisions are on sentence to be left alone. Uh, and so that's what happened here. Uh, the seven-year sentence will stand. Uh, but I thought it was an interesting case because it points out that challenge of when you have a decision-maker determining guilt, the jury is a different person from the person who has to impose sentence because, of course, sentencing is not something a jury decides or, in fact, is told anything about uh, in a criminal case. Um, It uh, is an example of how that can be a challenge for a trial judge, how they're to approach it, and but then ultimately when a decision is made, the Court of Appeal is going to give uh, wide latitude unless the sentence uh, is demonstrably unfit. Uh, and so on that fact pattern, despite his background and lack of record and the um, threatening conduct of the deceased, uh, the seven-year sentence will, uh, will stand, uh, which of course is going to be very significant for a person who's 77 years of age. Uh, and so he'll have uh, a number of years to think about uh, his response to uh, this threatening man coming down the hallway. Um, he did acknowledge, I should say, that uh, in retrospect, he might have done something different, like phone the police. But at the time, he thought what he did was, the, in his view, the appropriate response to the, the threatening man. Judged by 12, carried by 6. Sometimes it's a difficult choice. Yep, that's right. <laughs> yeah. we, um, is that the Ferry Creek blockade I see on the agenda here? It's- 
it's back. It never ends. And this is a really interesting <laughs> What's one. What's happening That's now? One, one, one more member of the Rainforest Flying Squad uh, who had a trial. And many of the cases we've talked about here have involved people who have pled guilty and have been sentenced. Mm-hmm. Uh, in this case, is also of interest, it looks like former Councillor Isset was counsel on this. He seems to be doing some good work up there for the uh, Flying Squad members. Uh, and this case may uh, be a harbinger of uh, difficulty for the Crown going forward. Uh, and that's, this was a man who was being prosecuted. He was sitting up on some tripod blocking a forest service road. Mm. Uh, and the challenge here was that the police practice, at least in this case, and it sounds like in other cases, was to read a summary of what the injunction was rather than the full injunction. The full injunction, the terms of the injunction that prevented the sort of interference with the work up there, went on goes on for like a page and a bit, a page and a half. And so the RCMP were not reading the entire thing, or at least in this case, passing out a copy of it. Hmm. Uh, maybe in the future they'll post it up on a sign or something. But instead what they did was read a brief summary, which was video recorded. So there's no doubt what was read to the man sitting up in the tripod. Hmm. Uh, and the argument was, well, hold on, you, you didn't accurately reflect what in your brief summary all the terms of the order. Um, and... One of the requirements uh, for a, a conviction uh, is that you need to prove beyond a reasonable doubt the person had knowledge of the injunction, right? It would obviously be unfair if, let's say, somebody was just hiking through the woods, came out on the road, and the police said, ah, you're under arrest, <laughs> right? Person, what are you talking about? I'm here for a walk, right? <laughs> I didn't know I couldn't walk on that road. And so you have, you have to prove uh, that the person has knowledge of the prohibition. Now, the judge did point out that it is a criminal offense, as we've talked about before, to block a road to prevent, you know, try to force somebody to do something or not do something they're entitled to. That's a criminal offense under 423 of the criminal code. Yeah. But that's not what they charged the man on the tripod with. They charged him with breach of the court order. Hmm. And so you need to prove knowledge. And the crowd, or the crowd tried to argue a concept of willful blindness. Hmm. Uh, and that is a legal concept. Um, so, uh, for example, but it requires um, somebody who is, like, uh, doing what they can to shut their eyes to information they know would compel them to do something. Like, for example, if the police said, I'm about to read you the injunction. Here we go. <laughs> Paragraph one. And the person plugged their ears and started yelling out, no, 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 I can't hear you. <laughs> right? You say, well, hold on. That may amount to uh, willful blindness, right? Or somebody says, here it is. I'm going to pass this to you and let you have a chance to read it before I do anything. And the person just says, I'm closing my eyes. I won't read it. I won't read it. I'm almost out um, of time. We've got 20 seconds. Yeah. Yep. So in any case, the judge found here the man not guilty because the Crown hadn't proven beyond a reasonable doubt that he had knowledge of the actual terms of the injunction. And so this may be a problem going forward. Because I imagine if they follow the same procedure, the same argument is going to apply there. So you need to prove knowledge of the prohibition, and uh, this particular flying squad member, not guilty. All right. Michael Mulligan from Mulligan Defense Lawyers. Pleasure as always. Until next week. Thank you so much. Always a pleasure.